are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. James 1, 26-27 If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of God. Last time we were together in James, it's been a couple weeks, uh, we were looking at the reality of uh, a distinction that James wants to make very clear, a distinction between a hearer only, someone who only hears, versus somebody who ends up doing the word. And James's encouragement, his command to us is, don't be a hearer only, be a doer. And he points out that if you are a doer and not a hearer only, then you are taking part in what he calls pure religion. And actually, it's the name of our entire uh, series. And you can, you can pick at it. It's, it's fine. I, I knew this coming into the sermon series title, which is not inspired, by the way. It being a sermon series title is not inspired, by the way. Um, but the reality of, like, we keep saying pure religion is at the end of every one of our James's sermons. But the reality is James gives us what pure religion actually is. So why are we doing that? Uh, good point. But also, just the reality we'll see tonight um, there's, a, there's larger categories to this idea of pure religion. What he's trying to hint at is that there's something to our doing, there's a posture to our doing that is different than all other kinds of doing. As he says here tonight, there is religion out there. If you want to find religion, if you want to get busy, if you want to worship, if you want to try to get to God, you can do that, but there is a worthlessness tied up to some religion. And then there is a pure kind of religion that actually is done from a posture of hearing and doing. We'll talk about that tonight. But the big question that we can really posit to ourselves is, because we're all involved in religion, because we're here tonight, is, is your religion actually doing the job of saving you? Is, is your religion actually doing the thing you think it's doing? Is your constant motion in worship for God, or maybe you would even talk about religion as a way of kind of getting to God, or maybe scratching God's itch, getting God to like you, all of these ways of framing up religion, these practices that we feel like we ought to be doing. Okay, yes, but is it actually doing the thing that you think it's doing? And this is part of James's thinking. He wants us to think very critically about our religion about what we do, our practices, how we get to God, how we see God, how we see ourselves relating to God. There is a religion that is worthless. And I'm 
fairly positive that none of us would like to go over to the other side of eternity and wind up finding out that what we were doing was empty, worthless. None of us would ever sign up for that on the front end, but here's James giving us a good warning and good clarification. There, there is religion that is that, versus there is a pure kind of religion. There is something that God actually wants this to be about that actually gets the job of saving done. And this is an entire argument for James that he'll spell out in the rest of the coming chapters, especially chapter 2. But last week we looked at this idea of pure religion is actively living in the blessed freedom of the gospel. We looked at this last, not last week, but last time. Let's make sure this is on. We looked at this last time from verses 22 through 25, that pure religion is actively living in the blessed freedom of the gospel. Remember, we parsed out this reality between hearing only and then finally getting around to doing. But notice what James says that the doer is. A doer is actually somebody who looks. Somebody who actually looks into the perfect or complete law of liberty the gospel, and perseveres in it. He's not a hearer who forgets the gospel, but a doer who perseveres in the gospel, and in so doing, he acts in particular ways and is blessed in his doing. So somebody who does the word is first and, first and foremost somebody who looks at the word continually, who keeps going back to the gospel. First and foremost, a doer is that. And then he finds himself doing a whole host of things. I remember, uh, if you remember, I put up this fancy chart. There's a lot to it, a lot that you don't really need to focus on, but there's plenty here to focus on. Uh, This reality of the Christian lives on two different planes. We live in two different spheres, two different categories, if you want to think about it. There's our life before God, And then there's our life before man. And James and many other gospel writers, especially Paul himself, but also including John and Peter, would say that life before God is a life lived on faith, lived with empty hands. God is intent on giving gifts. This comes from verse 17 of of James 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, down from the Father of lights. He delights to give good gifts. And so we approach God with empty hands. God takes all of his graces in Jesus Christ and gives them to us fully for free. We call that grace, and we call the receiving motion of of those gifts, we call that faith. And so with an eye of faith down there at the bottom left, with an eye of faith, when we think about our life before God, our religion before God, we come with empty hands. If I can say it this way, we come passively. We come not actually doing anything. We actually put aside all of our doing when we come to understand our our life before God. And we come and through faith we apprehend all of Jesus' doing for us. This is what is called passive righteousness. Passive righteousness. But there is another righteousness that is also very necessary and very needed. This is active righteousness and this is what james talks about when he says be a doer like who looks into the perfect law of liberty 
Don't just be a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts and is blessed in his doing. Those little phrase, a doer who sees, looks into the gospel through faith and acts, we'll see this actually coming out in active righteousness. Say, what is active righteousness? Well, if there's one plane before God, then there's another plane before humanity, before us in this world here and right now. And there's another kind of righteousness that's needed. But guess what? It's not your righteousness that's needed. Why? Because you already have it in Jesus, don't you? It's been given to you. So whose righteousness is actually needing to be acted upon? Your neighbor. God has actually prepared things for you to do called righteousness, and he actually intends for you to not operate them back towards God. Again, you don't need anything before him, but to freely look towards your neighbor and say, but I can help you. I have plenty of time, energy, love, resources to help you. What do you need? So we looked last week of if you are squared up on the gospel and realize that in Jesus you have everything that you need for free, that actually maybe for the first time allows you to look at your neighbor with actual motions of free love, unconditional love, and say, what do you need? And what you'll find is you'll see tonight, it actually helps you run downhill. It helps you run down to the bottom. I hope you'll see that tonight. But here's active, uh, the active righteousness, the righteous needed, and this is your neighbor's righteousness. I can say it that way. Your, your, your neighbor's justice, your neighbor's needs. The righteousness needed before man through God-given vocations, the hats that you wear. How has God equipped you? How has God uh, providentially placed you to help and serve your neighbor? Well, we would say that there are a bunch of needs that are actually needed in those spheres, right? bunch of things at work, a bunch, a huge task list at work that you have to do to go help and love and serve your neighbor, where if you don't do it, who else is going to do it? Who else has God called to do that? He's given you a job to do, to do out of love and service to your neighbor. And actually, those are the good gifts that God has prepared beforehand that you should be walking in them. Those are the very graces that God has called you by your vocational hat to go love and serve your neighbor. This is that distinction, and he wants us to know it as not just a hearer, but as a doer who acts and is blessed in his doing. Martin Luther was famous for saying this, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Tonight, we're going to find out that pure religion is actually loving the unlovable helping the helpless, running downhill with unconditional love and grace-filled movement. This is what James wants us to see. Actively living in the gospel of freedom does look like things particularly, though. Oh, there's that quote. She wanted to write that down. Actively living in the blessed freedom of the gospel, it does begin to take shape, though. We can't actually put some hooks on it. We can actually begin to walk down the path And James is making it very, very clear here in a couple ways that he's actually going to articulate what this free-moving, grace-filled, unconditional love movement is and what it begins to look like like in the life of the church. In fact, he's actually going to spend the rest of the epistle, the rest of his letter, explaining these three movements. 
It's pretty cool. I put all the text there for you, so not just the text of our passage tonight, but all the rest of the text from the book of James. As we parse out some of these ideas, you can look and see all the other texts where James is actually going to go to um, to help facilitate these ideas. But he's giving us an outline for the rest of the book of how he's going to spend the rest of his chapters talking about what the free life, looking at the gospel, squaring up with the realities of the good gifts of Jesus— what that begins to look like in the life of a church. So here we go. Three things. What might that look like? Three things that James wants our free-moving life of grace to look like. Number one, it looks like controlling the tongue. It looks like controlling the tongue. This would seem like, in one sense, James kind of has an axe to grind. Maybe he ran up to uh, ran up against... Um, a brother who had a sharp tongue. We don't know exactly what motivated this reality, but we can definitely see where he's going by uh, how he articulates what the tongue demonstrates about people, what the tongue demonstrates about where we are, or maybe more importantly, what your tongue demonstrates about what you believe. So whether or not this was a circumstantial thing that motivated James to write this is unclear, but there is a reality. James wants you to understand that what you say reveals a lot about what you believe. What comes out of your mouth helps you to understand the realities of what you're actually functionally believing in your heart. And he wants you to square up with it. He wants your tongue to be free. And by free, sometimes it just needs to be closed. It's part of what he wants us to understand. So we will talk about, in chapter 3, I put there that the huge chunk of chapter 3, we're going to get there. He's going to talk about how we use our tongue and it becomes a world of fire, a world of evil, destroying a whole host of things. There's a lot of things that he talks about in terms of what comes out of our mouth. We will get there, so I'm not really going to talk about it because it doesn't also really fit the context here. But it's enough to say within the context that if we are going to be people living freely in the gospel— then we do have to go back to the immediate context where he does say, sometimes, most times, it's best to just be very slow to speak. This comes, uh, this comes from chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. If you understand the realities of the gospel, if you understand what Jesus has done for you, if you are squared up on the grace, the free, unconditional, undeserved, unmerited grace that God has given you, the forgiveness that you have in him, the compassion, love, and mercy, and patience that he has for you, then there's nothing really that would compel you or move you to then speak all of your opinions that are ungospeled out in this world. There's not a lot that would motivate you to speak quickly or to speak sharply or to speak accusingly. It would actually cause you to, like like a horse with a bridle, cause you to be reined backwards. It would pull you back. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, if anyone thinks he's getting to God, moving towards God, worshiping God, doing all the right God things, But he can't pull back his tongue. He can't rein it back. He doesn't have the kind of self-control or self-discipline, but he's kind of compulsively forced to speak, forced to get out his opinion, forced to share the next thing. He deceives his heart. 
He deceives his heart. A purely religious person, someone who is a doer who acts, who is squared up on the gospel, understands that as a grace receiver, I, within my own self, don't have much to offer if it's not the gospel. I don't have much to say if it's not the good news of Jesus. And that's not, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying Christians should never open their mouths. Of course, there's tons of passages of scripture that we actually call to open our mouths and to share and to speak. But all those things are actually squared up on the gospel. But what James is challenging us with the wisdom here of the gospel is we're not driven by this kind of compulsive dependency. Almost like our tongue is a, is a drug where we have to speak, we have to share. And if they don't know my opinion, well, my friend, the only opinion you need to know about is God's opinion about you on the cross. It's the only opinion you actually need to know about. It's the only one you need to be consumed with. It's the only one you need to have your heart squared on. The reality is our hearts are so deceived and pulled away from that so quickly, it would do us well to sink our hearts so deeply in the realities of the gospel that we kind of let every other opinion just kind of like drop off. And that, I think, is hard enough. I speak from a place of uh, experience there, too, of I have a hard time squaring up with the gospel and letting every other opinion not matter so much I could, I could use a dose of, like, let me just be quiet for a week. No one, no one needs to hear my tweets for a week. No one needs to hear my latest thoughts or my, my latest thought piece. No one needs to hear my not-so-criticizing criticisms, right, or my constructive criticisms. And I think the reality is we're all so deprived of good news, we could all do enough of just speaking the gospel to one another and let that be our only opinion. James wants us to think twice about what we say and how we say it. This compulsiveness demonstrates a lack of awareness of how loved you truly are, how forgiven you truly are. The reason we feel so compulsive is because we feel like if we don't get that opinion out, and if we don't defend it, then we somehow aren't justified. We somehow aren't set right. Or maybe even worse, that we are God, we are, We are God's gift to the world to set people right. Oh, my friend. I don't think our opinion is the very thing that God is is using to change the world. He's, He's done that through the cross. Let that be our only opinion. He also goes on to say there's there's something else as well, something else he wants us to square up with as well. And this is on the positive. He kind of says the, the first one on a, on a negative. Uh, this, this is not what tr- true religion looks like. This is what worthless religion looks like. But now he's going to state kind of two things in a positive way. Here is what pure religion looks like. And the first thing he says about pure religion, he says that it's pure religion that is before God the Father, which should trigger our minds back to other parts of James where James talked about a father who delights to give gifts. The fatherliness of God is demonstrated by all of his gift giving in verse 17. That is the nature of God as a father is one who delights to give gifts. So he says that our pure religion is actually in the face of 
God the Father. Well, what's that relationship like? The passive one where God himself, as a good father, delights to give good gifts to his children? That's that's that relationship. So pure religion in the face of the father, before the father, ends up working itself out like this. If you are okay with God the Father giving you all the good, good gifts and you having empty hands, you embracing that by faith, not leaning on merit or worthiness or lovability, but simply on God's love and his grace and mercy first, then you're ready for pure religion. Then you're ready to get busy. But don't be surprised. Remember last time we talked, we talked about all the surprising things that James is trying to articulate. Here's yet again another surprise of the gospel. Here's what pure religion really looks like. Well, what what does it say? Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit those who will never love you back in the same way you love them. They're not in it for conditionality. They're not in it for reciprocity. They don't have that kind of capacity. They are are the ones to be loved. Like God the Father has targeted you unconditionally and put all of the gifts in your hands for free. Take that same motion, find people who have nothing, who have empty hands, and go put all of your love on them. Don't ask for anything in return. They don't have anything in return to give. Give it to them one way, one directional love. Go give and do it at their worst, in their affliction. Not when they get better, not when they figured life out, not when they have something in return. You want pure religion before the good, gift-giving Father? Love that way. Not to mention God is very serious about those who can't help themselves, right? Uh, It's often said in Christianity that God helps those who help themselves. My friend, that could not possibly be further from the truth. Not at all. And if you think that way, hang around for this discussion of proudful worldliness that we'll have in a little bit here. I'm in the same boat. I struggle with that mentality at least, though it might never come out of my mouth because theologically I know better. I know functionally, I believe God helps those who help themselves, and so I just need to get better. Just work it out. Come on, man, you too. I functionally believe that all the time. But my friend, hear the heart of God for those who cannot help themselves. Deuteronomy 10. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 86.5, he is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. I could go on because there are close to 50 passages linked together about widows and orphans together. Making it very clear in the Bible, making it very clear how God feels and acts to those who cannot help themselves or who need help. 
My friend, the reality is we should actually be more like orphans because we are like orphans in our sin, separated from God, needing a father, without spiritual parents, without a spiritual place, without a spiritual belonging, without a spiritual home. That was us, and the father of good gifts gave us everything in Jesus and adopted us into his family. Those things were written because we were the fatherless ones, and he brought us into his family, and because we have that posture and we have, have been given everything in Jesus, my friends, it's our posture that is that posture that should be directed back functionally at those who also cannot help themselves. And, then, and unless that motion, that gospel motion, is at play in your life, where by faith you are recognizing that before God, In Christ, you have everything you need. And then before your neighbor, you're giving everything out freely. I want you to truly think about your actual motion of love. Is it actually loving if if they have to love back? Is it actual true love if you love them because of some aspect of lovability? It's not the kind of love that, number one, Jesus demands in his holiness. Remember, these these are things that God does from his holy place. He makes that very clear. He loves the fatherless and the widow from his holy habitation. It flows from his holiness. It's that kind of love. And if your love isn't demonstrated that same free way, then my friend, it's not the love that Jesus requires in his holiness, but probably even maybe most importantly or clarifyingly, it's not the love he's given you. It's not the way you are loved and have been loved for eternity. He makes it very clear. Don't just visit widows and orphans just to have them around to make yourself look better. Visit them particularly in their affliction, in their trouble, in their sorrow. It's a different posture. You can't possibly climb ladders in those situations. No one's one's looking for a ladder in those situations. Jesus's grace, and we we see this very clearly, like water, Jesus's grace freely runs downhill. And unless the motion of your heart does not run downhill, Jesus has serious questions about the nature of your religion. If your religion is looking to run uphill, my friends, you have a problem. Number one, there's Nothing you need in terms of uphill movement towards God. As the psalmist says, who who could ascend the hill of God? Who could get life to go uphill? Who could do that? Raise raise your hand if you have a clean heart and a pure conscience. That's what it takes to, to start running uphill. But if you begin to understand the realities of Jesus, then like Philippians 2, you see the motion of the cross as moving downhill. And you spend the rest of your life moving that way. And the problem is, and you don't you, that might sound like a great bumper sticker, but the problem is church becomes particularly messy with this kind of grace at work. And I want us to be a very messy church. Not, be, not to like put it on a t-shirt and say like we're messy church, like 
That's probably some church out there. There's probably some church out there named Messy Church. Probably is, like for real. Not to put it on a on a sweatshirt, but so that these realities would keep us faced towards the cross. So that these realities would help us, number one, to see our own need, but also the blessedness of the gospel and how the gospel works pure religion into our lives. That That's what I want. So if our church has to get messier in order for that reality to take place, if we get more people here who would identify as sinners, okay, so be it. If we get people who have baggage and who have needs and we have to work through logistical or administrative problems, okay, fine. I That's, that's totally fine by me. I'm okay with that. And I, I, I want us to get very good at clearing administrative obstacles or sticky church life situations. Why? So that the clarity of the gospel, the pure kind of religion, would rise to the top and we'd be like, that's why we're here. That's why we're doing it. So that that stuff happens. And I, I do think, I do think we should actually think functionally about what this might look like in the life of the church. What, what is the messy step that God might be calling you to? Where the, the thing you're saying is like, yes, God, but that's actually too messy. And I'm not sure you're calling me to a messy life. Answer, false. He is calling you to a messy life because a messy life is all you have. What, you think you got a good one? You think you got a clean one? You want to play that game? What might that look like? What, what kind of ministry might that look like in the life of the church here? So that might cause me to miss Sunday service. Okay. That means I might have to like serve in a way where like every fourth Sunday I'm in the back there and I'm not hearing the preaching. Okay. That means I have to go sit next to somebody and they don't sing well. And that just affects my worship vibe. And my worship vibe is really important. Okay. I, I want us to think very practically, and I, I legitimately do think that means we should actually take up orphan and widow ministry, whatever that looks like here. And you're like, well, we don't really have a capacity for that. We're like, we're like a church plant. Oh, no. I don't care. I don't care. I don't think Jesus cares. What do we? If we're not doing that, then what are we doing? If that's not our motion of grace, if it costs us big time, to do ministry, like it costs Jesus big time to do ministry, like his life, like everything he had, like his blood spilling down from a cross, if it doesn't take everything that we are, then what are we doing? I, I, I want us to think through, and that, that means messy, hurtful church life. Okay, I don't care. Is what you are doing actually doing the work of saving you? And I'm okay using that language because James uses that language. Like, that's works-based theology. Check out James. He gets real close. Gets real close. But that's, that's the tie between what we believe to be true about the gospel and the free works of grace. That's the tie. Because in Jesus, we have everything we need. Then you can spend your life getting really messy and dirty and dying for other people. That's what that means. And the third thing he wants us to be very clear about 
is avoiding worldliness. Now, I, some of us grew up in a, in a spot where worldliness was simply like, can she wear slacks? Okay? That's, that, that's not all that worldliness means. Okay? James is going to talk about worldliness in chapter 4. He's going he's gonna to bring it up. John, uh, in, his, in his epistles, especially later on in his life, old man John speaking to us babes in Christ, says, children, let me talk to you about worldliness here. Okay? All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, what you want on the inside, the lust of the eyes, what you see with the outside that you want, and the pride of your life, he clarifies that as being the world, worldliness. Okay? You might frame it up as just like, the thought of the world apart from the gospel. The operating system of the world that's not, it is finished. That's, that, that would categorize worldliness in general, but old man John gives us some specificity. It's the lust of the, lust of the flesh, what I want on my inside, the lust of the eyes, what my eyes want on the outside, and then the pride of my life, thinking that I deserve those things inside and outside because of who I am. Pride of life. It says, that's, that's the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The, lo- the, the world is passing away, he says. In our passage, he says, keep oneself unstained from the world. Later on in chapter 4, he's going to make a very clear point that the world is tied to arrogance, to pride. And he makes it very clear, God opposes the world. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To those who have nothing and who are helpless and empty-handed, he has infinite amounts of grace. But to those who think that they earn it and deserve it from God, God has some war to do with you. It's it's an operating system that's against God. God is all about unconditional gift-giving and his kindness and mercy. And if you want to start playing the game of deservedness or lovability, if you want to try to bring something to the table, you might actually find God to be more of an enemy than a friend. You should be warned. The world has this world system of climbing ladders. You have what it takes. It's that inside inside you kind of mentality. You've got what it takes on the inside. You just got to work it out. James is saying, keep yourself unstained from the world. Don't buy into that garbage at all. And then don't start giving into those activities. Don't start running your grace uphill. Keep it free-flowing downhill. Keep yourself unstained from ladder climbing. Avoiding the world is measuring oneself by the cross. A gospel sphere is one that doesn't measure oneself by how high on the ladder of progress they can climb, but rather it measures itself by how much grace God has given to him through the cross. A gospel spirit is one that doesn't measure oneself by how high on the ladder of progress they can climb, but rather it measures itself by how much grace God has given to him through the cross. It's the operating system of upward mobility, or there's the operating system of the cross. There's worldliness, or there's the gospel. Keep yourself unstained. Associate with the lowly. Give till it hurts. Keep doing risky things. Keep moving downward. Be okay with giving up moral ground. 
And if you feel like you have righteousness at stake, or if you feel like you have justification or street cred at stake, or what's going to happen, that's going to hurt, and my insecurities and all these things flood, don't forget to be a doer who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres in it. It's the only way you're actually going to get that done. This is not a religious game. This is not just about doing the right kinds of things. This is about squaring up with the realities of who Jesus has made you to be in the gospel and living your life freely out of that. Pure religion. Pure, free-flowing, world-defying religion. My friend, when you look at the gospel, when you look at the cross, that's all you need to know about yourself. Who you are and what kinds of things you ought to be doing. The kind of mobility that Jesus has graciously called you to. And don't forget that, yes, this is, this is the burden you bear. As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, he calls you to take your cross, to suffer, to be ashamed, to run with the guilty, to run with the sinner, to run with the helpless. He calls you to do that, but also it's your eternal hope on your back. It's the cross you bear on the path to glory. It's the thing that you are weighed down by as your feet are lighter by the hope of resurrection. He's moving you towards heaven as we embrace his realities. And guess who's being served along the way? Other sinners like you and me, those who captivate the heart of Jesus. Don't we owe it to them? Don't, don't we owe that kind of love to your neighbor? Don't you have something in your heart that says, if Jesus did that for me, I owe it to my neighbor? My friend, what a beautiful, gospel-centered movement that he's calling us to. Those three things. Control the tongue. Help the helpless. Avoid the worldliness. Square up on the realities of who you are in Jesus and live your life that free. Let's pray. God, it's amazing that we get to walk this path. And Father, we certainly could have never constructed it, thought about it, put it on a map. Father, forgive us for living in our own ways, for pursuing our own things, for going after things that don't satisfy, that don't work the kind of purity of religion that you're talking about. And Father, I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see that everything that we need before you in Jesus we already have. And to spend the rest of our days loving and serving our neighbor out of love, not without some sort of compulsive dependency, but out of free love that we would keep running downhill and without the framework of upward mobility. Father, give us this kind of grace even as we look again yet into your gospel. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.
so 